ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, diet time is here. That's right, we're talking Friday the 13th, Part 8. Jason finally takes Manhattan on Kill by Kill. Well, greetings and salutations, Internet. It's your old pal, Patrick Hamilton, coming to you once again from Manhattan. That's right, I'm right in the center of it, 42nd Street. Look at all these amazing, glowing signs. Oh, it's like I've never seen it before in my life. I'm dazed by the brilliance of it. This is the Kill by Kill podcast, and we are dedicated to celebrating the least discussed component of any horror film, the characters. We will be unpacking all the gory details of Friday the 13th Part 8 in the hopes that the survivor's untimely end is just the beginning of the jokes that we can tell about them. And as always, I am joined by the one person I trust to help me navigate the mean streets, the one and only Gina Radcliffe. How are you doing, Gina? I'm good, Patrick. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. We are coming to you from 2018, only hours before this podcast is due to be dropped. Yeah, and and also I am probably going to die because uh, I am on the we are on the precipice of something called a bomb cyclone, oh, which no. I, I I have never heard of anything in reference to snow before. But but we are supposed to get uh, a great deal amount of snow and cold. So uh, this may be the last you hear from me. So uh, listeners, if you have any any uh, you'd like to nominate for my replacement, please uh, add us on Twitter with hashtag replace Gina now. <laughs> she might be a Gina sickle. And we're going to need somebody. Uh, this is unfortunate. Boy, I, I don't know what I'm going to do necessarily without you, Gina. This is going to be a real problem. I mean, could you have something warm near the center of you and that way the icicle might melt from within? I mean, that's how it works in cartoons. Uh, I think if somebody aims a hairdryer at me for a little while, I should probably be okay. Thaw, you like a caveman. This if is not, a good idea. If not, I could probably just tap out my answers with one finger. <laughs> what a listening experience for everyone at home. I'm all for it. Well, I hate to alarm you, Gina, but we are not alone. That's right. We have a special guest. And this is the man behind the monthly Kevin Geeks out at Cinema Palace's all around glorious New York City. The one and only Kevin Marr. How are you doing, Kevin? I am so good. I'm so glad to be here. And I'm so surprised. This is one of those rare cases where the movie is better than I remember. Oh, boy. <laughs> I had a pretty low opinion of it. I had a very low opinion of it. I think so, I had a middling opinion of it, and it's only lowered since. So this is going to be a wonderful cross section of opinions. Okay, good. I'm so uh, so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's fantastic to have you. Now, as always, our tradition here is to ask our guests what their first experience was with the Friday the Thirteenth franchise. What was it for you, sir? I was in the lobby of a movie theater in, uh, I guess, Woodbridge, New Jersey, and I saw the the one sheet for the final chapter. And if you haven't seen it recently, it's a pretty glorious poster. It's just the knife stuck in the mask in a puddle of blood. And uh, I, I hadn't seen any of the Friday the 13th movies at that point. I was mm, 10 years old, 9 years old. But I somehow knew who Jason was. And I was like, oh, my God, they're doing it. They're, they're finishing it. This is the end. Like, I, I, bought, I bought what they were selling, which is that this was the end. Uh, even though I hadn't seen a movie, I knew this was a big deal. And I don't think I saw a movie till part six which I really enjoyed, and maybe that's one of my favorite ones, I guess. 
Yeah, part six has uh, a lot going for it. I mean, they found a nice twist to the formula that wasn't there before. They they made yeah. a monster movie out of it, and you just have Jason rampaging around like Godzilla, and he becomes a force of nature rather than a stalker slasher. It works. I think part seven works in how it, it shifts the formula. Here, what was supposed to happen was an entire movie set in New York City. What we get is a mini siege picture, a sort of Die Hard on a boat before just one year past Die Hard actually coming out, and then a mini section set in what is supposed to be New York, and it turns out to be Vancouver. And, you know, opinions apparently will vary, and we'll get to that. But there's (laughs) one important part that I wanted to talk about before we get into the meat and bones of this episode. You had a video essay that uh, was through the Screen Crush channel. I saw it on their YouTube channel. Having to do with water and horror. And the first thing you sort of communicated to me is that you you thought that you had understood what this film was going for and the link was within that essay. Do you think you can clarify that for us? Yeah, I I think the, the two things that stood out to me watching the movie were I remember the last... 10 to 15 minutes taking place in New York City and the fact that it's actually more like 28 minutes in New York City I was like oh bonus minutes in New York this is more than I remember and then the other thing is the the use of the water motif and the idea that you have a, a young woman who's dealing with trauma and memory and uh, that she's scarred by events of her past that a lot of times in in cinema or in in art you'll you'll have water as kind of this stand-in for memory. It's supposed to suggest memory. And the idea of the unconscious mind is it's there's uh, there's dark water all around us, like the DJ says. Isn't that what he says? There's dark water all around us? Yeah, the surrounded by dark yeah, we're water. We're surrounded by dark water. That the mind is like an island, that you have the conscious mind is the island, but it's surrounded by all this dark water. And there's things in the water. We don't necessarily know what it is. And horror movies have tapped into that. One of my favorites is shock waves, where the uh, Nazi zombies come out of the water. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, a much worse zombie movie called uh, Zombie Lake, where the zombies come come from the water. Um, of course, Jaws, Creature from the Black Lagoon. There, there's a lot of these um, motifs that come up of the the things that are just kind of beneath the surface. They're swimming around. They're menacing. And that's kind of, you know, the unconscious mind that we're afraid of our own untapped brains. I think this is one of the movies that actually kind of taps into that by connecting uh, one woman's trauma to all the water that shows up in the mirror or it shows up when she's looking through the window and she sees young young boy Jason swimming around in there, one of the many, many different Jasons we see. Yes. Yeah, the panacopia of Jasons mm-hmm. available to us. Which, again, I would argue is... Uh, the, the way your memory is inconsistent, like, oh, sometimes he's mutant, sometimes he's got hair, you know, it's different every time. And the other big memory one, and this is what I did the video essay on, was about water in Stephen King's It. Now, you'll remember earlier in the movie, she gets a pen that, <laughs> I love that they never, the teacher never commits to it. It's, it's rumored to have been belo- used by Stephen King. <laughs> she... she has Word to say on the street. It, say it with the small print, not le- not a legally binding uh, commitment. Uh, so so Stephen King, a few years before this movie came out, he wrote it, which is all about this clown that lives in the sewer. And it is loaded with all kind of uh, water motifs with kids 
who had trauma who are now adults and they're they're like remembering these things and the the way the water comes back through like the rain and the sewer and the waters so um so so this is a strange movie that it actually has a sewer confrontation with with the monster at the end of the movie mm-hmm. spoilers and uh and it's got Stephen King's pen <laughs> and uh and it's got a flashback inside a puddle <laughs> that's so, perhaps my favorite discovery of this entire thing that and seeing that um inside the boat restaurant there's a lot of bread underneath the warmers smoking i didn't notice that you know i i love that you guys called out i have to go back and see is it it's in part seven where you you pointed out that there's an actress who mouths the lines of the other actors (laughs) i have to go back and find that scene oh my god oh man there's not a lot of second takes in mm-hmm. Friday the 13th movies and it's like sometimes work in its advantage and sometimes it does not uh, here I think there's a lot of run and gun going on I think this was filmed like a TV show and as a result it may pay the price for that a little bit but I like that there's an actual connectable theme to it so it doesn't feel as random like hey they were trying for something now whether or not anyone feels that they actually aimed for that target and hit it that's up for more debate than (laughs) yeah i have no idea i have no idea and and the water stuff is so tricky because there's just something really visceral and relatable that everybody deals with water i think it's nightmare on elm street five uh with rennie harlan there's a lot of water in that but it never connects the dots. It's never about like, oh, the unconscious mind when you're asleep and when you're dreaming. It's kind of like when you're standing in a shower that starts to fill up and you're drowning in it. Like it, it comes so close to like using water symbolically and artistically in these cool ways. But it's like, no, it's really just being used as like a, a visceral shock horror thing, which is also great, you know, and, and that when it works on both levels, like in something like Jaws, awesome. When it doesn't work as well, it's like, oh, well, it's there. Gold yeah, star, I, I gold think, star for trying. Yeah, <laughs> I think, listen, you're the first person to find meaning in what we've seen so far. Yeah, so I, I, think, I, I'm honestly impressed because I'm just like just like shaking my head with like not not at what you're saying, just watching this movie. And it's like I don't know what they were doing here, but none of it worked. I don't even know if they were aiming for it. This could just be the baggage that I bring to a B B movie sequel. Well, I you know I I think that. There's a an, an argument could be made for it, if not for the fact that um, Rennie and I've already forgotten her leading man's name. Sean. Um, Sean. He if only Rennie had seen young Jason just kind of laying there in the water, but no, they both saw him, which which <laughs> really doesn't make any sense to what was supposed to have happened to him. If uh, this was some sort of shared hallucination, if it had just been her that had seen him like that. Then I could say, okay, this is some sort of psychological thing. It's like, no, this is some sort of weird retconning thing where where the water washed him, you know, washed over him so hard it literally sent him back in time. <laughs> I was, I can never remember when Doctor Jekyll dies at the end of the story. Do they find the corpse of Jekyll or Hyde? I'm pretty sure they find Hyde, and I think it has to do with like werewolves when 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 the werewolf gets shot and then they find like a naked man 
it's it's kind of like oh you've returned to your your before all the bad stuff happened you're back to your normal self you know oh you're not the incredible hulk oh it's dr bruce banner or dr david banner depending on which version you're following that that i guess it's the idea of this is jason before all the bad stuff happened that i get but then he somehow just ended up back at crystal lake back on his bullshit (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah Oh my God! So, that he's back someone on did not learn a lesson here. Oh my God! All this came to nothing. I I do want to know what the idea was behind this because, really, as I was watching it this time, I got the idea like this outer husk of this mutant undead killer has been washed away by the toxic waste and revealed it it was just a shell and then i'm thinking what like kid jason was inside of this mutant (laughs) serial killer operating him on on like sticks like two raccoons underneath a a raincoat asking for pizza And and I feel like like is the is the audience supposed to kind of feel a sort of sympathy for him because we're seven movies into this there's no sympathy for this character. Well, that's the weird thing with so many of these slasher movies at a point where like when Charles. when Charles gets killed, it's like you're supposed to want to see that happen, but at the same time, it's like you're supposed to want to be rooting for Jason. And uh, I know you don't like to get political, but it's kind of like what we're going through now, where it's like. Fuck yeah, Bannon, you go after Trump. <laughs> it's like I can't believe I can't believe who I'm siding with here. Oh no, the uh, it, listen, enemies are becoming enemies that you can tolerate. And then yeah. you're like if you think about it for one second, you're like I don't want to be on the same side as this oh, person. Oh god, no. Well, that's what it's happens tr- with the that's what happens with with Freddy versus Jason. It's like, okay, uh, who are we supposed to be rooting for here? Because we have the serial killer the serial killer slash child molester and a whole lot of awful people that they just, you know, gradually kill off while trying to fight each other. Well, that, that gets to the core of, you know, why is Jason driven to do what he does? We understand Freddy to a degree. He was murdered by angry parents on Elm Street because he was not going to be punished for his crimes, crimes they were convinced he committed. And so he then returns to steal their children later on like it's a very clear-cut thing and the first friday the 13th very clear-cut again a and a very angry mother refuses to let go of what happened to her child and is determined to make sure the place where it happened never opens for business again okay i get that mm-hmm. now it's sort of like this dark curse of camp of crystal lake like because this stuff happened whenever anyone starts to exhibit the behavior that might wake this monster up they are then visited by that curse once he you know once he be you know dies and then comes back to life and he fights carrie (laughs) we're, we're starting to struggle with what he is representative of and here it's a complete slip of formula where now we're dealing with high school students never been teenagers before now we're he's on a road trip he's piloting a boat like (laughs) there's all these fun new things that he's doing that he's never done before and as a result it feels very out of its element it's not really sure what it wants to be whereas i feel like six and seven were very clear what they wanted to be six was a monster movie seven was frankenstein versus wolfman or in this case Mm -hmm. jason versus carrie this is like they couldn't quite they wanted to do a road trip 
and then they ran out of money, and they're like, "Ah, right, well, we'll put them on a boat." And that's, so as a result, everything gets muddled. No one's sure, and as a result, because they didn't paint the target properly, it's very clear that they didn't hit what they were aiming at. Yeah, it's a very long explanation. <laughs> I totally agree with you. It it almost reminds me of how like the 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 story goes. Die Hard, Die Hard Three was a Lethal Weapon sequel that didn't get made, mm-hmm. and it was like, oh well, then we'll get Samuel L. Jackson to be the black partner <laughs> to <laughs> who would have been Martin Riggs, but is now Bruce Willis. You know, it it almost feels like it was a different movie that like they for like, oh, well, we own the rights to Jason so we can make this other movie. I know that's not the case at all, but it yeah. just feel it 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 feels that way where everything is slightly off and you've you've pointed out previously how like the the retcons and the the inconsistencies, it's um it's pretty frustrating. Well, I you know, it, I usually I'm not so much of a stickler for continuity other than the fact that Jason drowned. And so I find it infuriating when he can swim well. Mm. (laughs) He can swim well all the way from the middle of New Jersey to to New York City. It's like making making Freddy, you know, fireproof. It's kind of like, well, this (laughs) motherfucker, there's got to be one way in which you die. Right. It's so funny, though, because in the last episode, you you articulated something that, like, I didn't realize that's how I imagined it, which is he walked across the ocean floor. (laughs) And it's like, you know, I I hadn't realized that's exactly what I had in mind. I just didn't realize it because I don't imagine him swimming, but I do imagine him just, you know, doing his power walk, you know? Yeah. Well, that's why he's breathing the ocean floor because that's why he's breathing so hard because it took a lot of fucking effort. Otherwise, yeah. why would a walking corpse breathe this hard? I, obviously, this is the portrayal. Like, the idea was, my Jason breathes hard. And I'm really having a hard time with it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's get right into it then. Let's dig in. Uh, let's find out who's still left alive at this point in the movie. Uh, it's a quick body count. First, there's Rennie. She's a teen girl with the hair of Tawny Katane in mid-Jaguar straddle and the clothes of a sad aunt. And we have her boyfriend, kinda, Sean. He's a character wearing more layers than the writer has given his actual role. (laughs) Sizzling chemistry between these two as well. Oh my god. Coming off the screen. When they kiss, he has this thing where he constantly clenches his jaw. And he starts to clench his jaw while he's kissing her. It's some it's some noisy kissing too. <laughs> the sound design is also very wet. Is that part of the horror? <laughs> the, the water oh, wow. and horror, the, the, the wetness wet of their kiss. Uh, and of course, uh, the man of the hour. We've talked about him over and over again, but this is where he really begins to shine. It's Charles. The kind of guy who thinks a blue cable knit sweater is an appropriate outfit to give a child swimming lessons in. (laughs) Oh my God, Charles. Well, let's get right into it. We're going to, this is the moment where Rennie snaps out of her flame puddle flashback and accuses Charles rightfully of attempting to murder her and which Charles immediately begins to gaslight her with, I rescued you. Motherfucker, if you almost kill somebody and then don't, you're not rescuing them. Let's just put that right out there right now. He changed his mind. That's almost the same thing. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, he, he threw her, he threw her in the water and then remembered, oh right, I probably get some sort of like sweet social security sitch or or you know foster care monies every month. I I better just fish her back out. <laughs> At that point, we we don't know whether he's the guardian or not because we we only know that she learned her parents died when she was in school and she's been in school for the majority of her life. So we don't know if at that point he is her legal guardian or if it's just he's coming out to she's coming to visit in the summer. Yeah, that's well, because we barely know up until this point, we only know that he's the guardian. We don't even get we're we're not to the point which she has her outdoor chair confession uh, right right now right. you you both live in new york city so this is a question i pose to you both how much of the outdoors is furnished there i don't remember the alleyways being filled to the gills with furniture you can just plop down in and confess about your feelings to there's other people just, there's just so much shit piled up and in, in everywhere they go there are garbage bags there's boxes there's the odd you tank of toxic waste. I mean, yeah, there there are there are couches, but they're usually put out in the curb for the garbage men to take away. And and they're covered with bed bugs. If yeah. you're listening and you're thinking about sitting on furniture you find outside in New York City, don't sit on it. You're not gonna be just chilling on the couch, you know, having a heart to heart with your would be boyfriend. You're <laughs> you'd be better off just sitting on an orange crate or just not sitting on anything really. Yeah. <laughs> Stand, stand perfectly still you, you can, away you, from a building you, so you don't get you, peed on. That's you the way you a, live in New York. You could have a meaningful conversation with somebody while standing up. It's probably the safer mm-hmm. thing to do. <laughs> There's so much shit piled everywhere. When Sean, in a rare moment of action, shoves Charles to the ground, he falls on what looks like an abandoned nest of Q, the winged serpent. <laughs> <laughs> It's just piles of piles of shit. Like he doesn't it's, even hit the ground. There's so much crap underneath it, it, him. It's like it, like New York City is like one giant episode of Hoarders. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. We've talked about uh, there are so many different New Yorks that this seems to be. Whether it's like Escape from New York or Chud, I think the the one that it reminded me of the most is Babe Pig in the City. <laughs> <laughs> Where it's very much supposed to be, oh, this is what people from the Midwest fear the big city is like. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Where, where it somehow manages to be both abandoned and yet there are just clusters of different gangs everywhere. And... Right, right. It, I, I know you talked on the episode about like what time of year it was filmed and when it's supposed to take place. But it's like, I think Thanksgiving weekend is the only time New York City is this underpopulated. Where everyone goes out of town, suddenly there's parking spaces available. The, the, the very long scene where they're standing just looking mystified at, at Times Square, which which again is really takes me back to the scene where Julius is very excited that they're almost to New York, which suggests that none of these people who are in New Jersey have ever been to New York City before. Crazy, right? They're they're just standing there like just gawking at these at these lights like they just they just fell out of a spaceship from Mars. <laughs> and and I am able to count how many people are in Times Square. There's about 30. And <laughs> and even when New York City was at its crappiest, which would have been right around when this movie came out to be fair. Yeah. There's still going to be just body to body people in Times Square, particularly mm-hmm. at nighttime. Many of them, you know, offering you tickets to come see the topless review. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's which, a proper offer. Which which in this movie the topless review is Julius. <laughs> Cuz he got his he got his head punched off. <laughs> 
This is probably around the time the uh, the New York Post printed their famous headline, Headless Body in Topless Bar. It's a classic. It's a classic for a reason. Yeah, this this place is, is nutty. I mean, we get to only see barely any of New York City proper. We mostly get to visit Vancouver's many alleyways. I'm assuming it's like Dark City. It's just all this all the time. <laughs> Um, yeah, you, you absolutely expect to see like 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 Mr. Book just floating past, just not even looking at him, just on his way to turn the time space continuum for someone else in another part of the city. <laughs> and it's at this point, Rennie and Sean have left Charles that he's finally visited by the specter that he did not want to believe in this entire time. It's almost like this is a Christmas Carol version. <laughs> of a kill he's wow. finally haunted by this ghost he has refused to believe in the entire time but the strange thing is that when they were in the boat in the flashback he does warn her about jason and she says you're telling a lie and it's like no he's actually telling you the truth jason Voorhees is underwater and he's gonna try to drown you so the funny thing is it's the one moment where this uh lying jerk was actually telling the truth yeah, the timeline of this is all for wacky. I don't know. Like, are they immortals? Were they in hypersleep for a while? Like, the timing of Jason being a small child still inside the lake, and then after the swimming lesson come the events of Friday the 13th Part 2? Uh, oh, boy. If I think about it too hard, blood will come out of my nose. Yeah, I, I, I opted not to go down this rabbit hole, but I read IMBD trivia that... The film is set in the year 2002. Sure. Makes perfect sense. Of this course. is exactly how the world looked in 2002. If you're a millennial and you're just joining us, wondering what life was like just after Y2K, put on Friday the 13th Part 8. This is a perfect <laughs> yeah, if, representation of it. If that, yeah, if that movie is supposed to take place in 2002, it definitely needed more Disney stores. <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's not a lot of broken windows policing happening in that uh, 42nd street sequence uh charles uh, obviously has seen this apparition not just some story this is a real life thing trying to kill him he runs away pretty much in a manner that gives you the impression he's a henchman for the penguin he's a terrible <laughs> he's a terrible runner no terrible he's no runner. tom cruise and this is also the scene in which Jason does his possibly his most magnificent act of teleportation yet <laughs> in that Charles runs away from him into a building in which Jason is already in there. Oh, that's perfect that, sense. That's just, you know, wiggling your nose, Samantha Stevens, just magically moving yourself from one place to another. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I'm surprised we don't hear the bamf. It's so, so telling you that this is magical. And I guess that's where I don't love this version of Jason because I don't view him as a magical tr creature outside of being undead. But yeah. then again, once you're you're resurrected by God lightning, like throw out the rule book, like dogs can play basketball. It doesn't matter. <laughs> but but you know we we know it's him because he he does manage to indulge in his favorite fetish, which as we all know is defenestration. Oh, yes. <laughs> Defenestrates the fuck out of Charles. This is the best stunt in the whole fucking thing. It's actually quite awesome. And it's they're trying to convince us that it's all happening in one take. And that's kind of awesome. It's probably the best edited little uh, teleportation sequence as well. Okay. Oh, I, I only wish there was a uh, the sound of a xylophone as he ran up the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> 
feel free to insert it in your mind because okay, I'll yeah. never be able to. I'll never be able to view it without thinking of that again. Uh, and Jason picks up Charles and I guess drowns him in a leftover barrel of ecto cooler. Just you know, I I. I... I, by the time I moved to New York, thankfully they were almost removing the the open vats of toxic waste that were just sitting out on the street for people to drown someone in. I mean, I can't say that I was that steeped in New York City culture at the moment this movie was released, but I don't remember toxic waste in New York City being synonymous. That was more like a, a new jersey sort of thing yeah the trauma obsession with it yeah and uh as as characters who came from new jersey i bet they get the last laugh like oh and we have the bad reputation for toxic waste (laughs) well it's just hanging out on the street alleyways here in the big apple i mean obviously they've built some sort of immunity to it because rennie just picks up a a a barrel of toxic waste and throws it at him (laughs) Well, she's still she's still flying high on liquid toot. <laughs> I mean, for all we know, it's like human growth hormone that she's been shot up with. We don't really yeah. know what's inside that syringe. We learn three very important things during Charles's death. Uh, and uh, they're vi- mainly visual cues, which makes for the best podcast, the best podcast material. But here they are in the order in which I noticed them. One, Charles is wearing white socks. <laughs> of course he is. This is a perfect character how's moment he, for him. How is he not sh- wearing garters? <laughs> <laughs> He's wearing white, what look to be hiking socks with a white and red stripe. Perfect for your you know dinner jacket and slacks ensemble <laughs> when you're escorting kids to New York City. Secondly... Uh, Jason has very veiny arms for yes. reasons <laughs> I'm not too sure of. I, I, is that meant to convey how wrinkly he is because he came out of the ocean and before that a lake? Well, he's, he's basically got to be a prune at this point. Well, we've often joked that he's a reconstituted raisin with bones inside. <laughs> <laughs> But now we also know there's also a 10-year-old kid operating it. So we have to add that to the equation. It's like the really gruesome version of uh, Vincent Adultman from BoJack Horseman. <laughs> oh, God. Now I'm never going to get that out of my head. And finally, we get a delightfully frame shot of what looks like Jason 69ing a man today. <laughs> Well, I'm not going to go get that image out of my head now. (laughs) Well, this makes now two extremely homoerotic kills in this movie. One, the spearing in the wheelhouse of the cruise ship. And now this. I I don't know if these were intentional a la Friday the 13th. I'm sorry. Nightmare Nightmare on Elm Street Street 2. Or they're just purely... People uh, didn't think about it long and hard uh, enough, and uh, they shot uh, it. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say that uh, they probably did not think about it in the slightest. Uh, and as such, uh, Charles meets his very needed end, waist deep in toxic-ish, waste-ish in the alleyways of New York. R.I.P.D. Charles. Did you find that satisfying, or, or did you did you hope that he would end up kind of staggering around, like just melting, like like Emil and RoboCop? 
Oh, well, here, this is, in terms of this film's use of toxic waste, this is only two years after RoboCop. And to if you're going to tell me that, that not one, but two people are going to meet toxic waste face first, I expect better, or at least, like, you, these people have seen RoboCop. That's a hell of a toxic waste death. <laughs> like, melting guy getting hit by a truck is fucking amazing and this is kind of like well it's a shitty way to die and i certainly don't want to go out that way spoiler alert for choose your own death venture (laughs) but i also want the other end of this and it doesn't quite give it to me it's kind of like it's grizz it's it's gross but he i think i want more well, I will go counterpoint to RoboCop and say that this is after the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, after the Toxic Avenger, where we've realized that toxic waste will give people superpowers <laughs> sure. and turn them strong and powerful. Also, very curious footnote, in the closing credits, one of the production assistants is a guy named Ken Shapiro. There's another guy named Ken Shapiro who directed the movie The Groove Tube. And he directed <laughs> he directed a Chevy Chase 1980s comedy called Modern Problems. Oh my and in God. Modern Problems, <laughs> Chevy Chase is exposed to nuclear waste, toxic waste, and it gives him uh, superpowers. This is the second time Modern Problems has come up <laughs> in this podcast. What was modern the other problems, one? Primarily known as a Chevy Chase vehicle in which he acts like an asshole for over 90 minutes and then gives his on and off girlfriend an orgasm via telekinesis <laughs> and that's all i remember about it i i just remember it being just a very extensive cocaine joke yeah <laughs> really big cocaine joke in there probably not as uh as much as D- D- Ch- jekyll and hyde together again oh that's did a, not a 90 even, minute did, non-stop did not yeah. even try to hide that it was basically one long yeah cocaine joke <laughs> i mean that was the selling point <laughs> i mean he literally sprouted a coke nail so yeah. I mean, they, they were not trying for subtlety or, or anything in the slightest no that movie and subtlety have not met <laughs> they, they haven't even passed each other at night like two ships. Okay, th- this is the only podcast I would bring this up on. There is a DVD you can get that is a, you know, they, they sometimes will just slap two movies together on, onto one disc mm-hmm. where you get Jekyll and Hyde together again and student bodies. Oh, my God. Oh. Now, here's the thing. The guy who wrote Jekyll and Hyde together again, or it might be the guy who directed it, Jerry Belson. Yeah is the voice of the breather. That's right. <laughs> so I don't think the people who manufactured that DVD know that because he used the stage name Richard Brando as the breather, but it's an incredibly satisfying coincidence. Now Patrick and I are uh, going to have an embarrassing moment next Christmas when we give each other the same Christmas gift. <laughs> oh, you shouldn't have. <laughs> Oh, my God. Let's just talk about student bodies again. <laughs> we can't. We have to finish this movie. We can't keep I'm sorry. I'm sorry to, sorry to derail. No, 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 no. It's the, all this movie is is a derailing. In fact, let's get to the derailing. First good, bad graffiti alert of the section of the movie. Old rock exclamation point. <laughs> Love it. Fantastic. What a great piece of graffiti. Someone added to this. The set decoration on point 
Uh, this is when Rennie finds a bedbug-infused chair to have her confession about her parents dying in a car accident while she was at school. And she confides to Sean that she feels like she loses everyone that she cares about. And Sean's response to this is, that's not gonna happen this time. Well, newsflash, Sean, it already has! Like, the people that she cares about, one of them died in a car explosion that she caused. So, let's back up off of this, okay? I'm beginning to get the idea that that kid's dad was right. He's a fucking disappointment, <laughs> and more than just not being a boat captain material. Like, he kind of sucks across the board. He gives shitty gifts, he's bad at consoling girlfriends, and he clinches his jaw while he kisses people, which is gross. Yeah, he's he's kissing very much in the way that you, you have to kiss a relative that you don't really want to. He's just kind of leaning in and stiffening up, and just, you know, he's not really, that. there is no heart in that kiss. <laughs> no it looks like they were forced to at gunpoint um it's it's not sexy and this tender unconvincing love scene is then interrupted by jason still breathing hard uh just kick just kick him just exploding through what looks like a bunch of chicken coops yeah <laughs> jason jason shows up during the kissing and sean mutters oh thank god oh <laughs> <sighs> He was, he was not into that kiss. Just in time. There's only so many layers of clothing he can put, him on, to, to put on that'll keep distance between him and his supposed girlfriend. Uh, and Rennie and Sean dart for a local subway stop uh, where we get to see Jason now murder yet another window door because Jason hates doors you can see through or doors that you can't. And then now we get into these series of running gags that because it's New York, ha ha ha, nobody's really all that surprised or bothered really by by the sight of a hulking, decomposing masked man soaking wet, probably smelling like a fish toilet. And they're just like <laughs> mildly interested in, in what he's doing and, and why he's chasing after these panicked teenagers and just shoving people around. They're just look like, eh, you know, New York, am I right? Who could care? I got to get to my job downtown. <laughs> uh, I, I have to go back to the glass door for two things. One, the camera follows them. They come to the building. They're they're running down the alley. They make a right turn and they turn into the subway. The camera holds. Jason comes through the left side, <laughs> which means Jason went the long way around the block. <laughs> In well, hopes to cut them off at the pass. He teleported the wrong direction. Like he there zigged you go. when they zagged. Like it doesn't work all the time. See, this no. shows me that there is effort involved. It it seems like a mistake, but when you think about it and then stop thinking about it and just make a wild declaration like I just did, it all works out. Okay. Um <laughs> This guy's been this guy's been brought back to life by electricity and lightning. It's all <laughs> possible that's right it lightning uh a a telepathic whammy it's Mm -hmm. all happened uh so uh rennie and and sean make their way down a very long canadian escalator uh (laughs) down to the subway which is obviously not new york city's uh they get on and we get another great good bad graffiti alert quayton lives is (laughs) Yeah, I was prominently I was, featured. I was like, I was reading that. I was like, Quentin 
Quayton? I I could not read this. It's it's something, Libs. (laughs) Well, I I will tell you what I learned from every other website on the internet, because they've all copied and pasted each other, which is that uh, this was a band that the director was in in high school. So we got to see that. Quayton Lives. That's a terrible band name. Oh, it's fucking horrible. I bet the band was worse than this movie, and that sounds (laughs) something. Um, Quayton lives, but his directing career, on the other hand, <laughs> no, it died with this movie. <laughs> um, when they run into the subway, they pass uh, the very gaunt Canadian uh, sort of junkie, I guess, um, and then they run like four cars forward. And he's four cars forward, so Jason isn't the only one who can teleport here. So can that junkie. It, it's it's catching. It's like a cold. It's, it's like he opened up some sort of portal or something. <laughs> and then there's, I don't know if we're talking about the same guy, there's the Tommy Wiseau guy yeah, this with is the, the long guy. black hair. Oh, same guy, same guy. Okay. Same guy. I didn't think of him as the junkie. I thought of him as, uh, oh, hi, Jason. <laughs> You're my favorite customer. Have some horse. <laughs> uh, so uh, th- now we have Die Hard on a train. Do we? Uh, sure. For like uh, 30 seconds, we have Die Hard on a train. <laughs> Why not? Because they have to outthink it. This is basically what I assume the movie Commuter is going to be, only stretched out for 100 minutes. Can I, can I just say that that as as a New Yorker who relies on on the subway to get around every day, when Sean was reaching for that emergency brake, I was like, "Don't you fucking dare!" Because <laughs> you are going to hold up all those people for a very long time. <laughs> but they have to. It's their only way out. So Sean pulls that e brake, and the pair just scamper away while everyone on the bus says things like, "What happened?" Are we stopped here? Is this my stop? These are the things that are written on the closed caption. <laughs> Why can't I get a Wi-Fi signal? <laughs> Since it takes... Well, okay, 2002, they did not have Wi-Fi. Fine. No, but, uh... they did not at all. The, yeah, this train is full of the gauntest people Canada has ever produced. <laughs> also, another good bad graffiti alert. On the Red Cross blood donation poster... Jason lives scrawled along the bottom of it. Nice. Ah. Ah, clever girl, said no one in this movie because there's not much clever about it. Um, but you see, this was all part of a devilish, fiendish plan by Sean. Because once the train has stopped and Jason goes out the front to examine where they have gone, Sean leaps out of the shadows like a Batman right at Jason. And Jason is not prepared for a hit at all. He's a mountain of a person. All it takes is a 110 pound kid with kind of scraggly hair to elbow him into the third rail. And he fries like an egg. Yeah. Cause somehow Sean is mystified by, by the sight of times square, but also knows about the third rail. <laughs> Yeah, I don't want to hear motherfuckers talk to me about how Ray is some sort of Mary Sue. I'd like to direct you to Sean in Friday the 13th, 
part eight, because this motherfucker either doesn't know anything or knows everything. And it varies from scene to scene. (laughs) He knows a lot about steering boats until he needs to steer one. He knows about third rails, no shit about kissing. It's all out the window. (laughs) Uh, And just a quick hint, everybody. Electricity brings Jason back. It doesn't kill him. Just, Just a quick reminder. Electricity made him rise from the grave earlier in this movie, only 90 minutes prior to this. It also doesn't kill Sean, though, even though he's right next to him. And Jason, if nothing else, would be a conductor. Yes. Well, he's he is all liquid. Yeah. Yes. Like there should be water exploding out of him constantly. Mm -hmm. He should be like one of those traps from Ghostbusters, just sparking everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's how I really feel about it. Now, this allows the two of them to finally make their way up to Forty Second Street, and we've talked a little bit about this, about how they gawk at it, about how long that crane shot lasts, which just feels like fucking forever and then i i i hate to 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 uh exhaust a point but they they act like they just have no idea where they are they're just stunned and baffled and i've never seen this before when dorothy arrives in munchkin land she is less surprised (laughs) than these two Exactly. It's like they have that, oh my God, this is a real place. Yes, it's <laughs> one state over from you. <laughs> yeah, they didn't just fly in. Like, do the, did these people grow up in M. Night Shyamalan's The Village? Because <laughs> that's the way they're acting. Oh my God, I've never seen Neon before. <laughs> I've never seen a Foster's ad before. <laughs> Oh my God! Can what I... does that what does that uh, camera Canon billboard say? It's gibberish. What the hell is going on? So they also, when they come out of the subway, the film introduces who I think might be my favorite character in the movie, which is the man with no pants. Yes, <laughs> that is the most realistic thing about New York City in the whole movie. It's awesome, <laughs> and. You... This is this is another one of the things of like, oh, I like that, you know, for a movie that's constantly hitting you over the head and dragging things out and really going over the top, they were very subtle. And it's like, no, I think the joke just didn't land. <laughs> <laughs> he is really trying to look as conspicuous as possible. He is raising every flag. He looks like Uncle Fester, who mm-hmm. answered the door a- after going to the bathroom and forgot to bring his pants. <laughs> It's, I mean, it is unsubtle. How he is not raising flags with the NYPD, I will never know. But then again, like, this guy wouldn't last 10 seconds on Hollywood Boulevard. So, I don't know. Maybe it's just a difference between coasts. I also noticed it during that terrible shot of them, uh, Steven Spielberging, uh, unsuccessfully, that Sean looks like someone took a few DNA strands away from Luke Perry. <laughs> he looks like like Luke Perry's caveman ancestor. Uh he just learned how to use tools. That leads directly to the only scene anyone ever seems to remember from this movie that doesn't include Julius's head. And that's when Jason walks by some screet some screet some scrimps, some street toughs, and he kicks their boombox and destroys it. And we get a variation on that's not a knife. This is a knife with Jason's face. 
Yeah, it's it's nice because I think there in the in the 1980s there were a lot of films that used the trope of like in being there. You had uh, Chauncey Gardner meets the street gang in something like They Call Me Bruce, Adventures in Babysitting. You know, there's all these movies where it's like if you go into the city, you're gonna meet a gang at some point. You're gonna <laughs> you're gonna have a switchblade in your face at some point. And I really thought. I misremembered that Jason was going to produce the machete. They were going to recreate Crocodile Dundee, and they they did kind of a left turn. It was a nice surprise. That's right. I, I think that's why it's memorable is its actual twist on it, and they mm-hmm. they see the visage uh, that's underneath that that hockey mask, and they do a self preservation thing. They just run the fuck away. Now, cut to the Troma Day Players Diner. Uh, okay, am I the only one that hoped that when she puts the cigarette cigarette out on the eggs, she actually serves it to someone? Yeah, that's totally <laughs> what I thought was going to happen. I was disappointed when she when turned. It's zagging. I was disappointed when she turned away and put it on the counter. I'm like, oh, come on, give me one thing. <laughs> um, when this is this performance is fantastic by this waitress. She was great in her silent role before being hectored by a crazy lady demanding more and more and more coffee. But here she really brings it. Her delivery of welcome to New York is only missing one thing. And that is in the silence leading up to it. We don't hear crow filling it with here's the windup and the pitch. <laughs> she needs a little more gravel in her voice. I think. <laughs> well, she's trying more than Canada cop did. Canada just cop a, just, just a, went just a tad just a tap more <laughs> why not and uh Jason then murders the front door of <laughs> this this is the most doors Jason has slaughtered in one movie it's just like was like he's someone for, gave this he's guy notes how, like, well, he's forgotten how handles work <laughs> he just doesn't <laughs> care man like he sees a door and he wants it ended he wants open entrances at all times. Everything should be al fresco. Uh, <laughs> uh, when he does this, this prompts some patrons to calmly lead, and then others to just remain where they are. Yeah, the, the <laughs> way they do. just quietly file out of the diner suggests that this is a regular occurrence. That that <laughs> someone just 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 bodily crashing through the door and chasing after people is, you know, maybe two or three times a week. It's de rigueur. I mean, this is just so common around these parts. And of uh, course, and of course there's no, there's no, you know, pay phones. The, the waitress is careful to point out that they have a pay phone in the back, but it's broken. Um, there's yeah. just nobody here, even though they're in the busiest part of Manhattan, there's, there's, Nobody around that can help them. So why not run to the Greasy Spoon Diner? Maybe they can help. They should be able to help because they have a mountain of a man who runs the dishwasher there. Uh, He's gigantic. And he obviously seeing that Jason has irreparably damaged their property runs over to say, excuse me, sir, are you going to pay for that? Jason picks him up and murderizes him into a mirror. Uh, does that count as a kill? We are counting that as a kill because he doesn't get up and the internet says that he's died. Oh, okay. That counts. Yeah. They even gave him a name. I don't remember what it is. It's, uh, it's probably like Bud or, or some sort of, you know, someone that would work at a uh, Al. <laughs> Jerry. My, my favorite when I was looking at the uh, credits, my favorite is someone is credited as Street Urchin. <laughs> 
<laughs> like it's, it's Nicholas very... Nickleby. <laughs> Based based on the based on the novel Jason Takes London by Charles Dickens. <laughs> oh, this is our second Dickens reference in this episode. We are really classing <laughs> up this joint. Um, Dickens and, and Jekyll and Hyde together again, because that's how we do. Yep. <laughs> uh, another great piece of set direction here is when Jason looks at himself in the shattered mirror, because why not? He's addicted to his looks. Uh, uh, we get to see a sign next to him that says, if you're an addict, we can help. Communities Against Narcotics. <laughs> can. That's not a great, that's not, that's not going to catch on. I'm just going to let you know. That's not great marketing, Communities Against Narcotics. It's, it's a very unusual choice because I Googled that acronym and poster to see if at any you know was there a three-month period where that actually existed somewhere in north america and it doesn't exist that i could find but what's interesting about it is that new york is always portrayed as this tough as nails every man for himself kind of thing but here it's showing an underground diner that's open till 3 a.m who has its arms open and wants to help people is very bizarre. Doesn't doesn't really fit with the rest of the movie. Unless, of course, you are running from a uh, a, a hulking, rotting serial killer. Then 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 they and can't, then they, they got your back. They, they, yeah, uh, that's the New York spirit that I've seen in Spider Man movies. And here. <laughs> um, the our our dashing duo uh, then find a way out the back of the restaurant through several gates. And they run into yet another fucking alleyway. Oh my god, this town is full of alleyways. With more garbage piled up than ever. I just, I just want to, I just want to point out. A friend of mine was, uh, he he shot a feature film in New York, and when it came time to shoot in an alleyway, he had the hardest time finding a location because <laughs> cinematically, you think New York is just like you said, this this maze of alleyways. Um, but it's really there are very few, and it's, apparently there's one or two that get used over and over and over for production. Yeah, and they're certainly not filled with just you know people's you know, stuff that people would put outside to you know because they have it's moving day. This one has hay. <laughs> when they when they exit the diner, there's a bale of hay. Well, there were chicken coops in the in the alley that, that yeah. Jason crashed through. Now, from my understanding of, of New York, which I've only gleaned from watching this movie, it's basically a farm-based industry, correct? And who it's knew? Just, that's where they that's where they grow the toot. <laughs> it's very agricultural, this New York City. They, they grow toxic waste and, and heroin syringes. <laughs> Luckily for our pair, uh, this isn't the dead end that they think it is. No, there's an open manhole, because of course there is. And this is when we get what everyone has been asking for from a Friday the 13th, and they never got it until this edition, a sewer chase. This is when we get to notice that Jason has moss growing on his shoulders. Because uh, the parts of him are blue. And, and they're, and they're I def- never noticed before. And I thought, actually thought in one shot, it looked like he was starting to like kind of rot through. But I guess it is like like moss or something. But they're also really amping up the you know people. Someone is running at top speed, and he's just trudging along, and yet still managing to keep up with them. <laughs> yeah, he's teleporting just for short distances for different camera setups. The pair uh, find 
perhaps my fourth favorite character in this entire thing, and that is the Con Ed worker. Let's call him a Con Ed worker, um, who delivers just the finest uh, written line in this motion picture. Toxic waste, son. The the sewer floods out with the stuff every night at midnight. Every night, toxic every waste. Every night. I don't think that's historically accurate. <laughs> Why is it toxic waste every night at midnight so that you can set your watch by it? And where is it being <laughs> flooded out to? Where does it disappear to? Who releases it? Like it surges from underground? Like it's Old Faithful? <laughs> I don't fucking understand. We, we, we clean out the toxic waste with toilet water. Okay, that, that, that <laughs> seems... That that seems like a uh, that seems like fighting fire with fire. <laughs> uh, unfortunately for this very diligent public servant, who is just doing his best to help two teenagers who found themselves in the New York sewer system by happenstance, he is murdered by giant wrench by Jason Voorhees in shadow, as if this is cat people. <laughs> He, you know, he tried for like a, a vampire thing in, in uh, the last segment. So why not try for a little, you know, sh- shadowy noir kind of thing? Yeah, get Val Luton up in this piece. Why not? Bring some I clients. also I also like that uh, the wrench is a very nice, uh, very nice clue board game type of murder. <laughs> I was say the exact same thing. <laughs> We've had someone die by lead pipe when Jason shoves their face into it. We've had a wrench. Have we had a hanging? Not necessarily. We've had he a did... choke. We've had a choking. We've had a choking. We've, we've certainly had knifings, so the dagger's mm. taken care of. Yeah. Uh, candlestick. No, is no there... candlestick. No. The closest we come to is a radio antenna. Or, Can we or, call that a candlestick? Or, or, sure. Or a guitar, Close enough. Or a guitar to the forehead. <laughs> That's right. A well, she calls it V guitar. She, she calls it her axe, guys. <laughs> God damn it, why couldn't JJ live to the end? This would be so much better if it was JJ and Rennie. The sexual chemistry would be a lot better, and it would be awesome hair versus awesome hair. I'm all for it, people. And in the sewer, (laughs) JJ would be all, oh, you got to film a music video in here. (laughs) The acoustics are amazing. The acoustics are amazing. (laughs) Fantastic. You can't believe it. Oh, my God. People just stand and stare when people are murdered in this movie. (laughs) And uh, now this is when we reach a really crucial moment. We learn one of Jason's mortal enemies in life, something that can defeat him. And we've never really seen it in action up until this movie. And that is if you flash a flashlight in his face, he's hypnotized. He'll forget what he's doing. And is just like chase you. Morse code. Uh, I think I think he's been underwater so so long. He's turned part frog. <laughs> <laughs> he would be he would be killed in a second by an anglerfish. So <laughs> I don't think he's going to last very long in the very very deep depths of the ocean if he's walking along those sort of Marianas Trench locations. This prompts uh, Jason to chase after Rennie. And this is where we also get another classic novel brought into the the uh, treatment here. We see that Rennie finds a random bucket of ooze just sitting around. She pounds open the lid with that flashlight and gives Jason the old Phantom of the Opera. His, his, it melts his face clean off. 
He he yeah. he looks like Skeletor. And and I I wrote down two questions regarding this scene. One was it how did it not eat through that Home Depot metal barrel that that it's being stored in? Yeah. And 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 how many different cancers does Rennie have immediately after being exposed to it? All the cancers. I mean, her, her, Even her cancers that she can't get. She can't get her, testicular cancer. Guess what? She's got it. Her her lungs should basically be like soup at this point. Just from, she reaches it, it, into the bucket with her hands. <laughs> I just she should like pick up like a smoking stump after like after just throwing it this this incredibly caustic material at a masked person's face, and it just it is immediately he turns into 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 tote from Raiders, from Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> I, I thought he looked kind of like a mad ball. <laughs> that, Just I, very 1988, 89. That's, mm-hmm. that's, and, and, also, and also he apparently has, has refound his voice. He, he, he is screaming yep. in this scene. Yeah. Yes. We haven't really heard his voice since part three, where he, he cried in pain in a hallway. So welcome back. Uh, I wrote down Jason looks like a sad juggalo. <laughs> <laughs> But I think Madball is perhaps the best. Yeah, uh, yeah. This is where we get the change head version of Jason, where it just kind of, the lumps bounce up and down. Like someone saw Rob Bottin do this almost a decade earlier and said, mm-hmm. oh, 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 let me do that. This is going to look great, guys. And he just sort of, boy, if you want to know what the difference between what this movie is and let's say even a not great sequel, um, an okay sequel, Halloween 2. When Michael Myers is on fire, stumbling down a hallway, he still looks threatening. That full body burn is fucking badass. And this guy looks like he had way too much to drink two minutes ago and is trying to make it to the bathroom. It's not cool. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe it's foreshadowing. He looks like he's about to throw up. And then he does. Is Is he throwing up? Toxic waste, or I is, I, I think it's is water. it puke water? I, I think it's puke water. But yeah, he's definitely like, oh god, oh god. He's certainly, <laughs> he's certainly swallowed enough water over the last few films. It's the only thing holding him together. Yeah, yeah he, he's definitely doing that, holding on to the wall, staggering. Oh god, please, please don't let anybody be in the bathroom, please. <laughs> I mean, we've all been there. That's <laughs> yeah, true. It's very, very true. I mean, at least uh, he, at least he does not need anybody to hold his hair back. No. That's true. Not necessary. <laughs> Maybe the moss, hold the moss back, but then the <laughs> moss can really take it. <laughs> Adding water to moss really isn't going to harm it in the least. Sean uh, is then magically revived long enough to be dragged to a ladder, and Rennie forces him to climb first, which I don't think was a smart move, but this makes her vulnerable because, of course... This is an 80s horror movie. We have to make the woman vulnerable. Otherwise, we wouldn't care about anyone. And uh, Jason grabs onto her, pukes water, and he is flooded by the same water that we saw twice earlier, once at the Lake of Crystal Lake. And before that, as the water flooding into the cruise ship. So now we know why it was green, because they colored it for this scene. Mm. Uh, And... This is we where we get a very odd cutaway. We cut away to a shot of the Isle of Manhattan and the Statue of Liberty. And lightning is striking everywhere. Lightning strikes the Statue of Liberty. And as a result, 
Jason's a direct result. Jason's outer shell falls off, revealing a perfectly normal child that has been operating this meat suit the entire time. I, I mean, who, who knew? Who could have ever guessed? <laughs> no one! No one could have guessed this! And I never put it together until this rewatch of this stupid, stupid movie! It's like that scene in, um, Men, was it Men in Black, where you put out the, the like, the alien looks like a human, like, it's operated by a little tiny, shriveled-up-looking alien. Yeah. It's, it's you know, I, it was such a, re- such a shocking reveal. <laughs> this has all been a long con per- perpetrated by, by an immortal child. Oh, my God, that child must be so cold. Dressed in just those flimsy underwear, or if those are swim shorts, they they don't. They're feel, too flimsy. They're too flimsy. I, I don't know. It's not a good choice. This movie now, is it's also that he's the the nice nice version of young Jason Voorhees, not the mutant one. And uh, just the one thing I wanted to point out is that there's a movie I saw by uh, Louis Bunuel called that that obscure object of desire, where a man is courting a woman and she's played by different actresses. And uh, it's like a high art kind of thing. I don't mm-hmm. exactly know <laughs> what it all means, but I wonder if that's if if it's on purpose that Jason's supposed to look different every time we see him when he's a kid, if he's a different kid each time. Well, Jason's like, good or evil. Jason, like any terrible ghost, can't fucking communicate, mm. and he's constantly asking Rennie to help me. Is was this all thing a long con to get Jason into a toxic waste tunnel? So that he might be flooded with the stuff and return to his 10-year-old form. And that is how he is, quote-unquote, helped. I'm going to take yes, that I, silence I, I, as confusion, <laughs> the same confusion I feel. It's so, I mean, it, it kind of leads to the idea is, was was Rennie kind of you know, called unconsciously to come on this trip? Has she had these visions before, or did they start only when she gets on the boat? Uh, again, as as evidence that they were trying on a lot of different stuff with this plot, and I, I think certainly out of all of the movies, this ending it makes the least ab- amount of sense because it ends on a weird sort of you you bittersweet note. Oh, here's little Jason, you know, a normal a normal boy. I mean, he's he's still dead. He's dead as a doornail, but he's normal now. He he's achieved peace. Perhaps he can ascend to heaven even. <laughs> and and you have this couple, you know, these teenagers who they're all the their parents are all dead. They they have been abandoned in New York City, which is you know, again, you know, is as foreign and hostile a place as 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 you know, Neptune. But you know, everything's okay. Look, oh he look he has her necklace. That's nice. And it's just it's just such an you weird tonal shift the way that this ended you know it would have been cool though if they got out and walked into times square and everyone was turned into tweens <laughs> i thought you were gonna when say this... i thought you were gonna say everybody's wearing jason masks oh that would have been even better <laughs> that would have been much better because then everyone drank the toxic waste that washed over jason then they mm-hmm. all become jason's I like this. Or 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 they or they go or they come out of the out of the sewers. What do you know, chuds? <laughs> That's a real out of the frying pan into the chuds situation. And they just look at the camera, shrug, and then you know you fade to black. I have two questions. Sure. So she says, "You didn't get me when I was a kid. You're not going to get me now." Does Jason know it's the same person? Does he recognize that Rennie is the kid from like 12 years ago? 
Uh, that is a decent question. We've because often postulated that Jason knows people's fuck style. Right. He might, therefore, he might know people more personally than we give him credit for. Gina, what do you think? And how do? But, but my question is, how does how does she know it's him? I mean, when 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 she is drowned, he's a child, is he not? Yeah, because uh, they said, oh, Jason Voorhees lives in the lake and he comes to get people who can't swim. So, so I guess she put two and two together that when she saw him however many years ago that that was Jason Voorhees. And, and it makes sense to her that this this being has come out of the water fully grown. And, and, I don't know. And, and, and this also, I feel like this also kind of taps into one of my biggest complaints in many of the later movies is with the characters kind of kind of vacillating between whether they think of what happened in Crystal Lake as something that actually happened and whether it's a it's just some old wives tale that, that that parents tell their kids to scare them even though it happened like five years ago. Does anybody know about what Jason supposedly did or is she afraid of him because this is a grown version of a child who tried to drown her in a lake? I don't know. I guess there's not enough survivors to tell the story. We, the audience, are the only ones who know all of the chapters. He didn't kill the newspaper industry. <laughs> no, that's the thing, Gina. That's why the newspaper industry has suffered. Jason Voorhees. Mm. Problem solved. We get rid of Jason Voorhees. All your alt-weeklies are going to come back, uh, I mean, roaring back better I mean, than ever. Roy had a, an, an extensive clipping collection. It would stand to reason that, that, that someone else in the area might. Yeah. But no one pays attention to the newspapers. We found out in part four that that when that mom, who's not given a first name, reads the newspaper and learns that even more bodies have been found near Crystal Lake. She's like, Tuesday, what are you going to do? <laughs> oh, my God. And then that dog comes back and there's a giant crane shot. Bye-bye. This is just a weird movie man so if she's a, a survivor of some kind of trauma who's haunted and really messed up and people are worried about her in the early scenes i almost thought the reveal was going to be that she's a blind girl like the way she moves around and stuff <laughs> is the dog a therapy dog is the dog allowed to go places because it's a therapy dog did they have therapy dogs in new jersey in the late 80s i don't know Ah. Uh. That maybe depended on municipality to municipality. Yeah. I, I couldn't tell you. It's, and then the the other Jersey thing I just want to give a shout out to, because uh, Gina, you're from Jersey. I I'm am. from Jersey. Yes. I think this movie has very much got a subtext of, you think you're a big deal in New Jersey, but then you come to New York, we'll see how tough you are. <laughs> turns, out, yeah. turns out Jason Voorhees was just a big fish in a small <laughs> pond. Oh, oh, oh Jesus Christ. Oh. All right. Shut it down, everybody. <laughs> this is the last thing we need to say about Friday the 13th Part 8. Good Anything night, else Irene. is just going to seem dumb. <laughs> We've done it. It happens. Put this bad boy in the grave. All right, but before we go, there's one more bit of business we have to take care of. That's right. It is America's least growing obsession, Choose Your Own Death Venture, where we decide of the deaths presented in this section of the movie. If we had to die that way, what would we choose and why? And up for bid this time around. We have be def defenestrated out of a second story window and get drowned in a vat of ecto-cooler. Uh, we have be thrown into a mirror at a shitty diner and get a wrench strike to the head. 
I guess we could also add drown in a flood of toxic waste. But we know that Jason comes back uh, unaffected by anything that happened here. So let's just choose from the top three. Um, Kevin, as our guest, uh, what say you? Uh, I'm an organ donor, and I just want to tell listeners, if you're not an organ donor, get on it. Put it on your driver's license. You can save lives. You can bring people back to life, much the way the movies bring Jason back to life. As an organ donor, I want to be as intact as possible. I'm going to go mirror. Okay. That is a very altruistic choice. I enjoy it. Uh, Gina, uh, what do you have to say? I, I'm going to go rogue, and I'm going to say that I want to be kicked across the sidewalk and immediately shatter like those uh, like those punks boombox. <laughs> that was not an, an option. And that I was, now, wait a second. Are you stating that that boombox was alive? <laughs> alive Rather. with music. <laughs> that song about living in the city was very lively. <laughs> Oh my god, that is such first draft rapping that is coming out of the boombox, it's insane. <laughs> oh my god, they honestly could not license any song at all. And they're like, I don't know, what would what would these uh, four street toughs be listening to? Uh, and they chose that. Can we get a Will Smith sound alike? <laughs> sure. DJ Jesse Jeff and Fresh Prince I mean, rapping about the Big Apple. The chances are those Street Toughs parents do not understand at all. Definitely um, not. As far as I'm concerned, I'm going to take the wrench strike to the head uh, because I've always wanted to die in a sewer. Live your dream, Patrick. Well, listen, if I don't have dreams, no one's going to dream it for me. So I might as well live them out through this. Okay, well, that just about does it. Kevin, where can people see and hear more of you in real life? Uh, you want to go to a website called lovekevin.com, lovekevin.com, where you'll find out information about the uh, the upcoming Kevin Geeks Out shows as well as some uh, videos and short films. I got to get my uh, It water horror essay up on there, but uh, we can we can tweet it out. And I'm, I'm also going to send you some photos of side-by-side -side comparisons of uh, Jason Takes Manhattan with uh, Land of the Dead because there's a couple of similarities. We'll put them on Twitter and I'll, I'll tag you. We can retweet them. Excellent. Let's check it out. People do it today. Hey, Gina, where can people find out more about you on the interwebs? Well, Patrick, I have a very exciting announcement. Ooh. Brace yourself. Okay. I am, by the time this goes up, I will have a official, as in I'm paying for this shit, website uh, featuring <laughs> my uh, my writing and all, all things Gina. It's uh, the very cleverly titled GinaRadcliffe.com. Um, that's Gina with an E, Radcliffe with an E at the end. Um, and also, uh, God help me, I am back on Twitter after a very long hiatus. Um, and that is porcelain 72 P O R C E L A I N seven, two. Excellent. Do it today. People do not delay. All right. If you want to, uh, find out more about us at kill by kill, let's say you, you have something to say about this episode. The easiest way to do it is on Twitter at kill by kill pod. You have something longer than 280 goddamn characters to talk about. Email us killbykillpod at gmail.com. No one's done it yet. Will you be the first? Who's to say, um, if you like this show, 
why not rate and review us on iTunes? I know it sounds small and it's a big pain in the ass, but guess what? It helps us be heard and seen by more people. You're spreading the word. I beg you to do it. If you tell us what your favorite kill is in the Friday the 13th series or any of the films you've covered, we'll talk about it here on the air. That's our solemn promise to you, the Kill by Kill listener. And until the body count continues, bye-bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Kill by Kills produced by We Write Good and is intended for entertainment purposes only. Friday the 13th is owned by Paramount Pictures. Jason is owned by New Line Cinema. No infringement is intended. Kill by Kill logo was designed by Josh Hollis. Visit him at joshhollis.com. The Kill by Kill theme was created exclusively for us by Revenge Body. Get the whole track and much, much more at revengebodymemphis.bandcamp.com today.